0: I'm preaching on Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 29. I'm praying that I will not say anything new. I'm praying that I will be simply reminding you of truths that you already know, truths that have been taught to you faithfully uh, by your pastors. Three layers um, in this sermon, the, the first layer is the title itself, uh, Christ Will Build His Church. And as I preach through Matthew sixteen, thirteen, to 29 and, and challenge you to faithfully serve the Lord because Christ will use your shepherds and He will use you, to build His church, I also want you to have in mind just this thought of just take it easy, even as you're working hard, and trusting and believing that Christ will build His church. Uh, The building of Christ's church, though He uses us, is not necessarily totally riding on our success in terms of what we do uh, and stuff like that. I hope that makes sense. That makes sense. If if it does, say amen. Amen. So uh, we, we want to trust that Christ will build His church and that the building of His church is not riding on us. It's riding on His promises. But, and, and then there's four commitments that I want you all to continue over and over again to recommit yourselves to these four truths which I will mention soon. And the uh, last layer... Is I want to bring to light, not necessarily bring to light, but have you want you to be thinking about the relevancy of the five solars, the relevancies of the five solars. Now I serve in in Haiti, and the Haitian church uh, does not know much about church history, so we have many churches who wouldn't know what the five solars are, and I'm trusting that you do. Amen. I want you to know that they're still very much relevant uh, to the church and that we should always be mindful of them and uh, consider them. So uh, I want to connect uh, each of the solas to our full commitment. Uh, this is a message that I preach through our graduating class in June, uh, June uh, twenty eight. It was our graduation, five pastors graduated from the Bible Institute of Grand Guave. Uh, So I challenged them with this message, and I want to challenge you with this message as well, uh, but not necessarily as pastors, but as the church, as the people, as the people of God. So let us read our text, Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, Verses 13 to 29. Matthew 16, 13 to 29. If you're there, say Amen. God's Word reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The word of God for the people of God. May God be glorified and may we be edified. Would you bow with me in prayer? Uh, seeking the Lord's help. Father, it's, it's good. To sing songs that are theologically rich, songs that encourage our hearts and yet reinforce our faith as well. Thank you that your people gather to sing songs of praises and adoration unto you. Thank you that we gather to read your word together. Thank you that we, we gather in faith, trust, trusting that your Holy Spirit would, would use me. I'm, I'm so weak, unable, but trusting that you would use me to encourage the heart of your people this morning. And we pray that you would do that. And we ask in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. So as I challenged our graduates last uh this this past June I wanted these pastors to know that they they have a difficult task ahead and their task is from the scripture that we read this morning Ephesians 4 uh, that God has gifted them to the church and they ought to equip the saints I challenged them that In this work of equipping the saints, though we've trained you to preach expositional sermons, we've trained you Sunday after Sunday, preach God's Word, give the people of God His Word. But yet, if you only preach expositional messages on Sunday morning, that will not be enough to equip the saints. I challenge them that each local church should be some sort of a mini Bible institute where the saints are being trained to know all of the things that we've taught you. we taught you church history. So we want you to value church history and we want you to pass church history to the people of God. We've taught you biblical theology. We've taught you systematic theology. We've taught you Bible study methods and hermeneutics, and somehow, some way, you you gotta have to pass these uh, truths on to God's people so that they may be equipped. So, in church history class, I'm privileged to teach that class with the help of Nick Needham. Nick Needham. Uh, he has a three three volume. A book, three-volume work, uh, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. And there, Nick Needham, he divides church history in three stages. First, the birth. And the second stage, childhood. And the third stage, adolescence. So the birth corresponds to the first 600 years of the church. And the church's childhood stage corresponds to the Middle Ages of the church, over a thousand years. And the stage of adolescence will start from the Reformation all the way to the present day. As we study church history, especially in the land of Haiti, we give special attention to the Middle Age. And the reason we give special attention to the Middle Ages It is there we find the birth of the Roman Catholic Church. And that is the majority religion in Haiti. It's also the majority uh, religion in uh, the Dominican Republic. And most of our region, if you say Christianity, most will assume that you're speaking of the Roman Catholic Church. So as the pastors shepherd their flock in Haiti, it is important that they instruct their people about the start of the Roman Catholic Church. And the roots of the Roman Catholic Church is found during the Middle Ages. And I'll highlight some key Roman Catholic doctrine. So, for example, it was around the year 600 when prayers directed to Mary, the dead saints, and to angels rose in full popularity. It was in 995 when Pope John 14 began canonizing dead saints. It was in 1215 when Pope Innocent III proclaimed the doctrine of transubstantiation as dogma. If you don't know transubstantiation, see Pastor Eric right after the service. It was in 1229 where the Bible was forbidden to lay people. And somehow we, I have to show uh, the Haitian saints the reason why they walk around with this really thin blue Bible that only has the book of Psalms and the New Testament. And most in the Roman Catholic Church, that's all the Bible that they have and they hardly read it. The doctrine of purgatory taught by Gregory the I in 593 was in full-fledged in 1439. So... The Middle Ages are known to most church historians as the dark ages of the church. A time when the church deviated from what the apostles taught. A time where some were even wondering, is the church still alive? And that gave root to the Protestant movement. And if we are the church, and especially if we are the Protestant church, we need to know what we're we protesting in the fifteenth and the sixteenth century. And out of the Protestant movement came what the five, the five solas, the five onlys, so that we can properly understand the gospel, so that the church would be directed back to what the apostles taught. That's why I'm going to connect these five solas to each point that we will see, we will see this morning if we dive into our text. So I hope that this, this brief synopsis of, of church history would whet your appetite and would even encourage the pastors that eventually you have to teach church history to the people of God. Amen? And you can only do that if you have a mini Bible institute within your, within your church. Because Sunday morning, Pastor Daniel will have to exposit Romans, Ephesians. They will not have time to teach you church history. So you have to come outside of Sunday morning if you want to be equipped fully for the work of the ministry. And if you agree, say amen. So Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. And if you have a Bible, I'm sure The heading is Peter's Confession of Christ. But I think the greatest statement in Matthew 16, 13 to 29 is a declaration of Jesus Christ. It is, uh, for me, the greatest promise in the New Testament where Christ says, I will build my church. It's wonderful for me because I am part of Jesus' church. So I can identify. It's a promise made to me. Christ will build me up. Christ will build you up. Christ will build His church. Peter's great confession and Jesus' wonderful promise. And understand, as Peter makes this great, confession, Peter is is speaking as a future pastor. Though at the time, Peter is not a pastor. But he is speaking as a future pastor. And understand from Ephesians 4 that Christ will build his church. He will use his under shepherds to build and equip his people. And Peter As a future pastor who gave this great answer to the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to what Peter himself wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 4. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntary according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. All pastors, that's our task. That's what the Lord has charged us to do. And as we're engaging and doing the work for our Master and Chief Shepherd, Christ is building His church. So Christ will build His church. He will use pastors to equip His people And from our text, there's four commitments, four commitments that all pastors and all of God's people are to make continually, continually we have to again and again recommitting ourselves to these truths. The first one, as Christ is building His church, we as the people of God need to again and again commit ourselves to knowing who Christ is. Again and again, we need to commit ourselves to knowing who Christ is. Second, we need to commit ourselves over and over again to being God's spokespersons. Each believer Each church member is a spokesperson for the Lord Jesus Christ. Each believer, each church member is a spokesperson for God himself. Number three. we have to be committed to trusting the promises of Christ. Be committed to trusting the promises of Christ. Last but not least. We must be committed to practicing church discipline. Be committed to practicing church discipline. Our first point is our longest. The first point is our longest. So, so bear with me. Amen? Amen? You going know, to bear with me? It's the longest. The longest one, but the others are shorter. Okay? So pray and bear with me. Amen? Be committed to knowing Christ. Be committed to knowing Jesus. We talked about the five solas. At the center of the five solas is solus Christus. Solus Christus. That's what the Protestants declared. And that's what Protestants continue to proclaim today. That's what the church of Jesus Christ continues to proclaim today. And Solus Christus declares that salvation is through Christ alone. That is, faith in the person of Christ, his sinless life, his atoning death, and his triumphant resurrection from the dead are the only grounds for anyone to be justified before God. Without Christ, there is no salvation. Without Christ, there is no gospel. So if Christ is so central, we must commit ourselves over and over again to knowing more and more about Christ, who He is. And in our text, Christ is the key figure. Christ is the key person. Jesus is asking His disciples, who do people say? That the Son of Man is. And they said, some say John the Baptist. Now, it's very logical that they would say John the Baptist because John chapter 14, Matthew 14, Matthew tells us about John the Baptist being beheaded and him dying. And even there are rumors that John the Baptist would come back to life again. So it makes complete sense that they would say John the Baptist. It made sense that they would say Elijah because John the Baptist, uh, Elijah was somewhat of a foreshadow of John the Baptist. They were closely connected. As I read the text, it was like, Jeremiah, where did he come from? Why would they say Jeremiah? Extra-biblical resources say that there was this thought that Jeremiah would reappear again. So, if not Jeremiah... You're one of the, of the prophets. So Jesus wants the disciples to know clearly who he is. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ if you don't know who Jesus is. We cannot be the church if we don't know who Jesus is. So we must commit ourselves to knowing, to knowing Christ. So in this interaction between Jesus and his disciples or or more precisely said, between Jesus and Peter, Jesus asked the question and he refers to himself as the Son of Man. So Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. And Peter's response, he he describes Jesus as the Christ and the Son of the living God. So we got to consider all three titles. And that's in our quest to know who Jesus is. So if we consider the first title, the Son of Man. Old Testament scholars. Son of Man. If you think about the Old Testament, in what book the Son of Man referred to over and over and over again? Say it with me. Ezekiel. Hey, if you were to take my my Bible here that I purchased this Bible when me and Danny were taking an Old Testament survey in 2004. Okay, I've had this by, if you go to Ezekiel, you'd see Son of Man highlighted over and over and over again. And Son of Man was referring to Ezekiel, so it makes complete sense that they identify Jesus as a prophet because his ministry uh, could be somewhat connected to Ezekiel. Okay, That title is mentioned 90 times to refer to the prophet Ezekiel. And what did Ezekiel preach? He preached the destruction of the temple and the restoration of God's kingdom to Israel. Yes, Jesus was preaching a kingdom message so we could identify with Jesus as a prophet. For he indeed had a prophetic ministry. Also, in the Old Testament, we see this title, the Son of Man, and uh, our preacher made reference to Daniel. And that's, that's my, one of my favorite references in the Old Testament. Let's look at it. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. I kept looking in the night visions, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like whom? One like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So when we see the son of man and we think of Jesus, this is who Jesus is. When we combine the old and the new, we can clearly proclaim that Daniel is speaking of Jesus Christ himself as the Son of Man. So when we think of the title, the Son of Man, it could refer to Christ being the one whom Israel was waiting to come. Being the one whom would have all authority, whom all of the nations would come and serve him. The Son of Man is the one who would have an everlasting kingdom. Throughout the gospel, the term Son of Man is used 80 times by Jesus himself to refer to himself in all three gospels. In Matthew 12:8. Right before we get to Matthew uh, chapter 16, Jesus made this bold claim that the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. So this, this term, Son of Man, does not only refer to His prophetic ministry and even uh, uh, to Him as the one whom Israel was waiting for, it refers to one who has divine privilege. Okay? When Jesus is saying, I am Lord over the Sabbath, there can only be one person who could make that claim, Lord over the Sabbath. God alone. So, in some ways, the Son of Man makes reference to the divinity of Jesus Christ. That's the first type. Son of? Son of man. The second. Peter, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. Peter refers to Jesus as whom? He says what? You are who? You are the? The Christ. You are the Christ. You are Christos. You are Messiah. The term Christ, I stated, Christos. Christos, that's the Greek. Messiah, that's Hebrew. Both terms come from the verb meaning anointed with sacred oil. Anointed with sacred oil. When used as a title, it means the anointed one. And that title could refer to prophets, kings, and priests. So when we think of Jesus as the Christ, the Anointed One. It is amazing that the New Testament pictures Jesus as prophet, king, and priest. Let's look at three references. Luke chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. Luke chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke chapter 7, uh, chapter 7. Verses 16 and 17. Now, this is one this text can preach. Because here, before we get to verse 16 and seven and 17, Jesus is at is a funeral happening. And a mother lost her only son. And in Jewish culture, if you lost a son, it's like you lost hope. And Jesus lays hand on the coffin, and he raises up the sun. And look at what the people said in verses 16 to 17. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us. A great prophet has risen among us. It is clear that many saw Jesus as a prophet. And it is normal, it is logical to see Jesus as a prophet. But He is greater than all of the prophets. He is the anointed one. Quick reference to Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. And on his robe, and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus being identified as the King of Kings, the Anointed One. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 22 to 28. Hebrews chapter seven verses twenty two to twenty eight. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant covenant. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of oath which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. There's a whole host of things to unpack here. But here's the simple one. The simple thing to see in that text is that Jesus is a great high priest above all of the other high priests. If you see that, say amen. So Jesus has the Christ. He is a prophet above all other prophets. He is a king above all other kings. And he is a great high priest above all other high priests. He is he is the capital T H E the anointed one. Of God. Third, third, Jesus is identified as the Son of the living God. And here, Peter is emphasizing the close relationship between God, the Father, and the Son. And in John chapter 10, 30, when Jesus declares himself to be the son of God, the people wanted to do what? They wanted to stone him because they said he is making himself equal with God. So Jesus, as the Son of God, shows us we need to know who Christ is because knowing Jesus is knowing God. We cannot know who God is if we don't know who Jesus is. Back to the point that the church needs to be a mini Bible institute. Now, I'm, I just have about 40 or 50 minutes to talk about what? Jesus the Christ? Jesus the Son of God? Jesus the Messiah? And all of these terms that really tell us who Christ is so that we can know Him more, embrace Him more, serve Him more, know Him better, embrace Him better, serve Him better. Imagine if you had 16 weeks with one of your pastors just to go through the doctrine of Christ. Imagine that. Imagine how much you would know Christ even more and more. Imagine how excited it would be now when you come and Pastor Eric or Pastor Danny claims Jesus as the Christ. And a bunch of verses are floating through your mind. A bunch of discussions that you had with your brothers and sisters in class are floating through your mind. And before you know it, not that you're charismatic, your hands are up. Because you've been challenged by the truth and you've embraced the truth and, and you love it so, so much. So, so we have to commit to knowing who Jesus Christ is. Yes, faithful exposition Sunday after Sunday. But we need core groups. We need classes so that we can be saturated with Christ. I told you that was the longest point, right? It's over. Amen. And thank you for praying. Be committed to being spokespersons for Christ. The church, we have to commit to being the spokespersons for Christ. At the Bible Institute of Grand Guave, our slogan is, where the Bible is... The sole authority. Where the Bible is the sole authority. Now this, this slogan comes from the Reformation movement. is where Christians protested and said to the Roman Catholic Church that de- which, uh, they developed many traditions that were against the Bible. The phrase sola scriptura was to communicate to the Catholic church that the Bible had to be the ultimate source of authority for Christian doctrine and practices. And we as a church, if we are going to speak on God's behalf, if we are going to speak for God, we need to know what God says. If you don't know what God says, you cannot speak for God. In our region, the prosperity gospel, I think the prosperity gospel is somewhat not as popular in the U.S. as it were 10 years ago, would you say? But in the continent of Africa, it is booming. And Africa is transporting that doctrine in our region. So, specifically in our region, and this is one way you could be praying for the Haitian church, as we stand as spokespersons for Christ, spokespersons for God, we must know that we're not prophets and we're not apostles. There are many churches in Haiti where they have prophets and apostles leading the church. And that's a clear attack on sola scriptura. And the prophets and the apostles in the Haitian church, they dominate the church. How do they do that? Because they speak prophetically. They speak with apostolic authority. So this is very crucial for the Haitian church to understand, and very crucial for us to understand here. In class at the Bible Institute, we had to train the pastors just like I was trained by Dr. Roscoe, Hermeneutics, Ephesians, he challenges to do what? Read the entire the entire book. Read it over and over and over again. Chapters before and the chapters after all have implications on you better understanding your text. So someone has to equip the saints to know Bible study methods. They can't do that on Sunday morning. Doing the expositional hour. Though it contributes to it. But someone has to sit with you and give you some principles that make clear sense so that you can read your Bible better. So Bible study methods can not be taught by Pastor Danny while he's preaching. While he's exposing Romans. I mean, he could uh, uh, give examples of how it's done, but if you really want to understand how do I as as a Christian read my Bible better? You need someone to come alongside you and equip you to do that. And the pastors will equip saints and other saints will equip other saints. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Amen? You're praying for me to wrap it up? So Here's the point. Most of the Haitian pastors will say, Ephesians 4 verse 11, here are the five gifts. I got five fingers. I have five gifts. Someone like, let's read the whole book. Let's go to Ephesians 2.20. Show that the church is built upon the foundation of, of the apostles and the prophets. And they received the revelation of God. And we as pastors and teachers... We have the revelation in those 66 books. Our job is to know and understand what God says. So that if we stand behind the pulpit without a Bible, we cannot say that God said anything at all. So if we're going to be spokesperson for God, just as my wife reminded me last night, when you preach this text, please keep referring to the text so that the people can see where these points are coming from. So You, you saw Son of Man, Christ, and Son of the Living God, right? You saw that, right? Amen. The, the, the second point, to be committed to being God's spokesman, you could see it in, in Jesus' response. Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal that. Uh, Peter, w- w- what you just said, only God, my Father, could have revealed that to you. Folks, flesh and blood did not reveal this. These 66 books were not revealed by flesh and blood. They were revealed by men who were moved by God. These books, God's divine, inspired. Infallible and errant and the only authoritative source for Christ's church. So if we're going to stand and speak for Christ, we need to know the book. We not only need to know the book, we need to know all of the different doctrines that flow out of this book. We need to know systematic theology. And that can't be done systematically Sunday after Sunday. You need to be sitting as a group and to see what major doctrines flow from this book so that in all matters, whatever the subject may be, I can consider the subject from Genesis to Revelation. And then I can say, thus saith the Lord. Amen. So to be committed to being spokesperson, But God requires a commitment to faithfully study God's Word and to faithfully know the doctrine that flows out of God's Word. And I hope you're being challenged to embrace this idea. Oh, Lord, make us a mini Bible institute. I said that to um, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Felix, and we had lunch. And he leads a Los Angeles Bible Training School, and I taught there for at least five years before I left for Haiti. And I I was telling Dr. Felix that, in a perfect earthly kind of sense, that ministries like the Bible Institute, uh, uh, like the Bible Training School, and even ministries like the Bible Institute of Grand Guave, in a perfect earthly sense, The church wouldn't need them. Because what are they? Or what are we? We're a parachurch ministry. We're coming alongside the church to help the church do its work. So, in some ways, an earthly church that is growing into full maturity trains her own pastors. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Equips her own pastors... To know the Word and to be able to faithfully exposit the Word and lead the people of God. I'm not saying don't go to seminary. I'm just saying when you are trained, and if this church is blessed and has four or five or six people that have received this marvelous seminary training, saints, take advantage. Take advantage. So be committed to being spokespersons for Christ. Third, third be committed to trusting in, the, in God's promises. Be committed to the trusting in God's promises. One key question that the Gospel asks is how can sinful man be justified before holy and just God? well-known author and Reformed theologian, St. Clair B. Ferguson. And praise the Lord for St. Clair B. Ferguson. A lot of his works are being translated in French. The Haitian church and the French-speaking church are having access uh, to this great theologian uh, who's helped the church understand God's words better. So this is what uh, uh, St. Clair B., uh, B. Ferguson says concerning faith and justification. The New Testament expresses this relationship Between justification and faith in various ways. We are said to be justified through faith. Romans 3.22. By faith. Romans 3.30. But we are never said to be justified on account of faith. This is a true statement. The faith that saves is not a faith that anyone here can boast about. In other words, we can't take credit for it. For it is by grace that you were saved through through faith and not not of yourselves. So by faith, St. Clair continues, by faith actually implies by grace. Because of the very nature of faith as a receptor rather than a contributor. Faith draws everything from Christ and contributes nothing to him. Therefore, says Paul, let him who boasts, boast in whom? Boast in the Lord. But what does that have to do with us trusting in Jesus' promises here? By God's grace, through faith, we have to keep on believing and trusting that Christ will build His church. We have to keep believing it. Because there will be seasons where we will get on each other's nerves. Not only seasons, maybe every day. There will be time where that sister, that brother, they just have issues with one another. And there will be times where Pastor Danny, Pastor and where a whole staff like Moses could be faced down and saying, Lord, we don't know what to do. Are you building your church? When those times come, and if you're already in those times, just know Jesus said it! You can believe it! He will build His church! So don't simply focus on your local church and how wonderful it is when Pastor Danny said he was preaching at that church and your other pastor preaching at that church because God is moving for all of His churches Everywhere sometimes yeah you could be going through a hard season but rejoice in the work that the Lord is doing at some the local church as they're praying for you and you're praying for them the promise is true despite what's happening in my native country in Haiti right now Christ is building his church I believe it so we keep trusting this wonderful promise, and what does Christ says? He says, "I will build my, my church, and what? The gate of Hades will not overpower it. The gate of Hades." When we left for Haiti, when we were preparing to go, Nicole's grandmother, whom I love dearly, said, "Well, will is just come over here?" And it's taking my Nicole to Hades. Like, no, Grandma, it's Haiti. not not Hades. Hades is a whole different different thing. The gates of Hades will not overpower. Greek mythology, Hades was the god of the underworld. So by the new uh, by the New Testament period, Hades had three different meanings. Meanings and context determines the meaning. So one man includes death generally. And most of the translation, even uh, the Creole and French translation, they just use the word death. Uh, and the gates of death will not prevail uh, against it. It could refer to a place for all of the dead. It could refer to a place for the wicked only. So it is debated. But the bottom line, if someone were to say, and Satan cannot prevail against it, what does Satan uses the most? uses death. If, if, if we fear death, if we fear death, there are certain things we will not do for the Lord. We just won't do it because we fear death. But Jesus is saying, death will not prevail. Why? Because I am the life and the resurrection. I am the first fruit of all resurrection. If you believe in me, know that you can look at death straight in the eye and say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, fear it. I can preach this with such passion because I live it. Each year, we travel back to Haiti. We look at death right in the eye and say, "Even if we die, Christ will build His church." And the apostles believed it. Even if we die as martyrs, Christ will build His church. Because of the political turmoil, two of, two of our professors at the institute they faithfully pastor a church in the capital of Port-au-Prince. And Port-au-Prince has been categorized as now the most dangerous place on earth. So every morning, one of the pastors, uh, one of the professors, they'll call me because they travel to Grand Guave three uh, uh, three times a week. So every morning, because we know of the political instability and robberies and, and kidnappings, so they call me every morning to just make sure that they're there and make sure that they had safe travels. Or some mornings they'll call me and say, All right, we, we can't make it. It's too dangerous. We can't go through. So one morning I get a phone call. And it's our dean of students and Enoch, and I'm like Enoch, you okay? Uh, so you can't make it? All right, all right, all right, man. We'll just miss that day and we'll just reschedule. Like, no, 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 no. Uh Fasson, our academic dean, he was kidnapped this morning. And your heart just dropped. And I called his wife. He was kidnapped for six days blindfolded for six days, hands tied, feet tied. The safe days, They fed him three times. So we had no classes and we just had prayer meeting after prayer meeting. Seeking the Lord and, and praying through the Psalms. And saying, Lord, whatever happens, just, just, just increase the faith of our brother. That he would know no matter what. No matter what, you're faithful no matter what you're good no matter what you are with him we pray 6 days later fason was released and we had a chapel service and fason gave his testimony he said the first day he was blindfolded when they asked for 200,000 US dollars to release him said he told his kidnappers Listen, I do not have $200,000. My family, they will not have $200,000. And Fasol, he looked at death straight in the eye and told the kidnappers, Pull the trigger! If it's 200000 you want... Because if you pull the trigger, I am a Christian. I will be with my Lord. And if my Lord has brought me this far for you to take my life, he will care for my wife. He will care for my two girls. Pull the trigger. Because we will not give you 200,000. And as Fasson testified, on day two and day three, he he was resolved. It was resolved in his mind that he was going to die. He was going to die. On day four, the Lord encouraged him, strengthened his faith, and he was believing that, I'm not going to die. There's a reason that God has brought me here. So he started sharing the gospel with his kidnapper. And as he shared the gospel over and over again, on the day of his release, one of the kidnappers said, let me give you my number. And once he was released, the kidnapper called him and said, explain the gospel to me one more time because I am a wretched man. I've done a whole host of evil things. Please let me know if there's forgiveness for me in Christ. Rosson well, said, yeah, that's "Yeah, gives us for you. That's why I had no fear to die. Because in Christ, I know I will live again. So he shared the gospel with him again. So the gates of Hades. In the gates of Hades, death has no victory over his church. And we have to keep believing that. We have to keep trusting on the promises of God and specifically here on the promises of Christ. Because if we as a church, we cease to believe and trust in these promises, you won't go anywhere. You won't go anywhere. You're not going to send anybody anywhere because we'll be so fearful of what? Death. And the text says, death will not prevail against you, will not prevail against me, will not prevail against the church. Last, be committed to practicing church discipline. So I, I say the most difficult things for last. Be committed to practicing church discipline. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Psalm 115 verse 1 is one of my favorite One of my favorite verses in Scripture, not unto us, O Lord, but unto your name. Give glory because of your loving kindness and your truth. So when when we bring everything together with the five solas, when we properly understand it, it reveals that God is the source provider and sustainer of our great salvation. So He alone gets the credit. He alone gets the glory. He alone gets exposed so that all knees will bow down and worship Him. And that's what the church is all about. There are two difficult things in our passage here. First is about the rock. Who is the rock? And the second is, who holds the keys of the, of the kingdom? Concerning the rock, three views. Some say it refers to Peter. Others claim that it refers to Christ or Peter's testimony or confession of Christ. A Roman Catholic church sees it as, as Peter, the first pope, So we can clearly debunk that because Peter would would not agree with them. Okay, if Peter was here today, he would say, no, they're wrong because I'm not the rock. Not in that sense, at least. Why? Peter himself himself in first Peter two verses four and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by man, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Yes, Christ is the rock when it concerns our salvation. Peter is not the Pope. There's no hierarchy system. Acts chapter 15 and the and the first in the Jerusalem Council, we don't see Peter as taking uh, center stage and saying everyone listens to me. We see everyone communicating together. In Galatians 2, 11, verse 12, Paul, Paul himself confronts Peter. If Peter was greater than Paul, Paul would not have been able to confront him in such a manner. So no, Peter is not the first pope. But yet, Peter was the first disciple called by Jesus, as Matthew shows us in his gospel, Peter, in some in some sense, is the he speaks on behalf of the apostles. He is their spokes uh, spokesman, If we could say that. And uh, Peter preaches the first gospel, clear gospel message, in Acts chapter two, uh, where the church was built and established. So yes, we we can't say that. Peter does not have preeminence, but Peter does not play a significant role in terms like we have to go through Peter for our salvation. Salvation is through Christ alone. Last, who holds the keys of the kingdom? Is it Peter? Does Peter hold the keys to the kingdom? And this is where we get our last point, really. Commitment to practicing church church discipline, commitment to practicing church discipline. If you look at verse 18, 19, pardon me, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have, built, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in in heaven. That language is Matthew eighteen. It's Matthew eighteen language. It's used in Matthew, in Matthew 18, Matthew 18, verse 18. But if we go to verse 15, it's church discipline. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every act may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Same language. In Jesus' day, this was the language of the rabbi. It was, it was used to, uh, a language as a way of establishing order, of laying down the rules. So what rule did Peter lay down? He laid down the truth of who Jesus is. And Jesus is building his church upon these truths. And Peter, as the spokesperson, as the spokesman for all of the apostles, they would go after the resurrection. They would preach the truth concerning Christ. And the church would be established. So who holds the keys to the kingdom? Some say the apostles. But the apostles are no longer here. Apostles are no longer here. But the church... Is built upon what? A found what the prophets and the apostles laid laid down. So here's what I propose to you. And to do that, this, we're almost home. We're almost home. Thank you for praying. First Peter. Well, pardon me. First Timothy. We're almost home, and, and and you're gonna be so happy that we ended right there. First First Timothy, chapter three. First Timothy, chapter three. And you know 1 Timothy 3 very well because you know there it outlines the qualifications for pastors and deacons. And pastors, as we said in the very beginning, God gifts pastors to the church. They study and know God's word so that they can equip the saints. And that's the primary way in which Christ is building his church through his truth. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see the qualifications for Pastors and deacons. When we get to verse 14. Paul. Inspired by God writes. I am writing these things to you. Hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed. I write so that you will know. How one ought to conduct himself. In the household of God. Which is the what? The church of the. Living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So when we combine the church being the the pillar and support of the truth, before we went on the mission field, we went on a missions conference, and Dr. John MacArthur was the keynote speaker, and he looked at all the missionaries and said, you guys are the most important people in the world because you know the truth. I said, well, Dr. MacArthur, I didn't raise my voice up against him. But as I sat where I sat, I thought to myself, well, Dr. MacArthur, this is all Christians. All Christians are the most important people in the world. Why? Because we know the truth. The church is the most important institution in the world because the church knows the truth. And as the church proclaims the truth, the church holds the keys to the kingdom. But there goes church discipline. If the church proclaims the truth and does not practice, truth. then The church becomes a hindrance to to the kingdom. D.A. Carson puts it this way in his commentary on Matthew 18, the continuity of the church depends as much on discipline as truth. If the church proclaims the truth and we do not live it out, Can we justly say that this church is a church of the Lord Jesus Christ? So when we speak of church discipline, when we speak of church discipline, your mind quickly goes to its communion service and the elders are up and then they're saying, this brother was unfaithful, It's something scandalous, and we have to remove, it is with sadness and tears in our eyes that we have to remove his membership. When we think of church discipline, isn't that what all of you think about? Right? Yeah or nay? Yeah or nay? But I want you to think about church discipline differently. I did say it was the last verse. I wanted to end it with the pillar of truth because I'm a pillar Baptist, but I'm so sorry. We're not going to end there. Second <laughs> Timothy 3.16. This, this, this is a church discipline verse. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Church discipline is happening right now. If through the preaching of God's word, and as we pray, and you had a self-inventory, you evaluate your lives, and you said, well, based on what I heard this morning, there are some things in my life that needs to change. Church discipline has taken place. The first step is the first step. You are confronted with some sin. Every Sunday morning, as the Word is proclaimed, it should be profitable, not only for teaching, but for reproof and for correction. Either you're being corrected on Sunday morning, or if you're being corrected with the Word of God by a fellow brother or sister in Christ, that is church discipline. That's how we safeguard the final step. So when you think of church discipline, just think just a a brother who says, uh, Willio, I I know you like to tell a lot of jokes. And I know sometimes you meet someone for the first time and you crack a joke. But that person doesn't know you. A, a, A good friend of mine told me that. That person doesn't know you. So when you crack that joke because they don't know you, that may hurt them. So, Willio... Think about your jokes. Brothers and sisters, that's church discipline. That's the first step. That's one correcting me and saying I'm in danger of misrepresenting Christ. Someone who probably may just see you as a married man walking out the church and it's just you and you like seem to have like a 30-minute conversation with some young woman and then someone comes and put their arms around you. And say, brother, you know, I know there's no harm in that, but just be careful on how you do that. And what others may say, and what others who may be passing by, what may be going, that may misrepresent Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's church discipline. It's correction. It's correction. It's all it is. And with God's grace, we pray that we don't have to get to the final, to the final step. But the church must not only commit to preaching the truth and the way we show that we practice the truth is by discipling one another. And that happens in many fronts, not just Sunday morning. So the five solas are still re- relevant for the Church of Jesus Christ. Sola Scriptura, Solus Christus, Sola Fide, Sola gratia, Sola Deo Gloria. We should all continue to commit to them as pastor and people. So let us trust over and over again, commit ourselves to knowing Christ. Commit ourselves to, pre- to preaching Christ. Commit ourselves to trusting in the promises of Christ. C- uh, trusting that He will protect us from the sting of death. That is His promise. Let us commit to shepherding one another through church discipline. Hello Baptists, I love you all. I know these were all just reminders. Last year I traveled with this and I pray for you all. And we'll continue to pray for you all and pray that the partnership that we have in gospel ministry will only be strengthened and grow over the years. Thank you for loving Christ and thank you for showing me the love of Christ this, this weekend. God bless you all.